0: That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach, with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for On
1: this edition of The Literary Life, my guest is Peter Balakian and together we celebrate the publication of his new collection of poems, No Sign. Carolyn Forche says that no sign possesses an historical depth I have found nowhere else in American poetry in recent years. What Belakian has achieved here is a brilliant assimilation of the historical, philosophical, political, and psychological. Peter is the author of another seven books of poems, including Ozone Journal, which won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize. In addition to his poetry, Peter has written the best-selling The Burning Tigress and his memoir Black Dog of Fate, both books exploring his Armenian roots. Our wide-ranging conversation explores all of this and also his very important work with writers for democratic action. Peter Belakin, welcome to the literary life.
0: Thank you. It's good to be here, Rich, with you at Books and Books in Miami on the first day of May. What could be better?
1: Nothing can be better. Um, <laughs> and what even was even better than it all, than all of that was a couple of nights ago you were with us here at Books and Books and you gave a remarkable reading from your new book no sign and um, you had in the audience people from seemed like every aspect of your life Uh, you had an Armenian community there you had a poetry community there it was really quite beautiful actually Um,
0: thank you it was uh, look it was a memorable night for me and uh, when students show up whom you taught decades ago uh, you're always feeling nice
1: yeah, you know, it's so cool because uh one of Peter's um one of Peter's high school students came. How did that make you feel?
0: Very old. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is true. That's what happens. But uh she was she loved uh seeing you at that time. But what I also want to know is you're experiencing Miami. You've been to Miami before, but how are you finding Miami on this trip?
0: Miami uh is really a new zone for me. I have been here once or twice before, but uh, I have spent a couple days just observing the scene along Ocean Avenue, and I I find it a singular American sight. I've never seen anything like that particular zone uh, where you have this gorgeous beach and water, and then you have a couple hundred yards of park uh, with these, and again, to a northerner's eye, the sensuality and lushness of Florida uh, is is um, mythic, and here it is: palm trees and uh, green and flowers of the semi-tropic world, and um, and you have a f- fifty feet from that, you have this. Um, Promenade, you know, this this, uh, pedestrian street, and I've never seen more fashion, more people from all colors and all ethnic groups, uh, the true best of American culture, uh, really the melting pot, promenading down (laughs) this great boulevard with all the hotels and restaurants and bars. The whole thing... In a two or three hundred yard you know stretch is a kind of slice of American life of a kind I simply haven't seen anywhere else.
1: And you're staying at the Betsy Hotel, which has a writer's room.
0: Yeah, the Betsy's really terrific. Uh, it, it like your bookstore, the Betsy is a piece of serious American culture. Uh, it's a hotel devoted to the arts literature. Jazz is playing around the clock practically at least you go to sleep listening to jazz and you wake up listening to jazz um the Plutzik family has done something marvelous with the Betsy so it's an honor to be there and from there to your bookstore here in Coral Gables is like a a perfect slide from one piece of culture to another
1: speaking of that slide what I loved about our reading uh was when Jonathan Plutzik in his introduction of you, uh, talked about his father Chaim, and you have a relationship with Chaim as well, or you knew of his work, and you both sort of riffed, and you mostly on something that I found fascinating as a, a lover of a lover of the history of poetry, um, of that part of New York that meant and means so much to the history of poetry. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, You know, I've been teaching at Colgate University for 42 years. When I arrived in 1980, my colleague, uh, dear friend, no longer living poet and translator Bruce Berlind was excited to introduce me to Upstate Poetry Culture. And it was a circuit. It was called the Upstate Circuit. And it had been really kind of a dynamic Uh, reading tour would go through upstate New York uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And um, the poets of upstate New York kind of made a whole culture uh, of their own. And if you start in the West at University at Buffalo, SUNY Buffalo, you have Robert Creeley. uh, And if you go to Rochester, another 150 miles down the road, you had Chaim Plutzik, who was later succeeded by Anthony Hecht and you come down another hundred miles or so and you're at Syracuse University where you had Delmore Schwartz, W.D. Snodgrass, uh, Philip Booth, uh, later you'd have Raymond Carver and um, uh, Tess Gallagher and then Hayden Carruth. You come down the road to Colgate where my colleague Bruce Berlind was, I would join him by 1980. And then a little bit down the road to the east was Allen Ginsberg's Poetry Commune Farm. And you kept going, you know, east to Albany and so forth, down to Binghamton, and there were poets everywhere. And they were really poets who were defining the art uh, during that mid-century period. So it was really a wonderful synergy to find myself here. Uh, with you and Jonathan Plutzik um, making the events possible and then talking to Jonathan about his father. His father was a wonderful poet. Uh, died too young, but he's left behind some really fine books.
1: But you talked about, I, I happen to know that you're from New Jersey uh, originally, right? am. Mm-hmm. And so uh, talk about when poetry became, in your mind, an option for you um, to be able to live your life as a poet and someone who could see no other life other than being a poet.
0: Well, things happen in uh, in phases, always for us. And I, um, as a high school kid, I was um, immersed in playing varsity football and basketball and baseball. I really, I really worshipped at the altar of those sports. Um, And um, played seriously and hard and all that. And went off to college to play for a year as well. Um, But underneath, I had become obsessed with language. I had become obsessed with lyric language. I didn't call it lyric language then. It was just poems and songs. Uh, Bob Dylan was a big impact on me because he brought uh, dense lyric language into the domain of rock folk rock popular music all of it and uh you know it's a, looking back at it it's a kind of weird atypical story people like bob dylan don't go into popular music they go to mfa programs but dylan was that strange hybrid and uh his songs matter to me uh i fell in love with uh the poems of hart crane uh emily dickinson whitman uh, at, at, an, at, at the middle of high school. And so something started happening in me that was not going away. And when I got to college, uh, um, I did a kind of about-face. I got ri- I, I left my jock life. I left the football team. I wasn't interested in taking orders from the coach anymore. And it was a very intense and turbulent time. I entered college. I entered Bucknell University in the fall of 1969. And uh, the anti-war movement was a defining reality, especially for us 18-year-old boys who had just received draft cards. And uh, it it, it, it got you engaged in civic life. The war was wrong. The war was criminal. And now you are being asked to participate in it and you had to start thinking for yourself about who you were and how you wanted to be. Now, uh, uh, I didn't start writing poems about the war or against the war. Those two things were happening kind of simultaneously in slightly different alleyways for me as a college student. But but both of those zones, the writing of poems and the getting immersed in kind of politics of American culture, uh, liberated me into a new space uh, for me, you know, like it did for many college kids. Uh, but the writing of poems became a, a habit and an obsession, bad as my college poems no doubt were. I had a marvelous teacher and mentor, a poet and uh, fiction writer, Jack Wheatcroft, no longer living but a dear lifetime friend. And working with him, finding a teacher in college who would take you seriously is one of the great good fortunes of life, of anyone's life. And I I wish all students that kind of good luck when they go to college. But for a short period uh, in the 1970s, I was friendly uh, with uh, Richard Hugo, um, and Dick Hugo was a marvelous, um, and I I love his work. I love his iambic tetrameter, moving to pentameter, uh, blank verse, and those poems about lonely uh, and desolate Midwest and Western towns. And uh, for a while, I had some rapport with Hugo, and that was important to me. But really, my poet mentors uh, in in, in person uh, were not that many. They were mostly in the form of... uh, the books I was reading that were having impacts on me.
1: You didn't necessarily follow the path of many writers. You didn't get an MFA, instead you got a PhD in literature.
0: I didn't go to graduate school to do the MFA route. I I did a PhD in American Studies at Brown, mid-70s to 1980, the end of the 70s I was at Brown. And I studied with some amazing um, scholars of American literature, Hyatt Wagner and Dave Hirsch in particular. And I became good friends with Michael Harper, who was the poet at Brown I most gravitated to. And we had a lovely friendship and a kind of uh, good conversation. Michael was a very interesting uh, figure.
1: But you also had this political sensibility that had been developed and forged uh, through the 60s and 1969 particularly. And these they sort of all kind of came together as well because of your, your unique uh, uh, familial and personal background as well. And I happen to know only because at the reading, as I mentioned earlier, there was an incredible Armenian contingent that came. And um, you've written a number of books about your Armenian heritage, about the Armenian Holocaust. So speak to that for a little bit, if you will.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, Mitch, at a certain point um, in your life as a writer, I'm a, I'm a young poet in the middle of the 1970s, really, in my mid-twenties. And uh, just writing poems, this is what you do, you write and write, and you you stumble, and perhaps it's more than stumble, because I think it's probably uh, there's a sense of inevitability about the things you discover. Uh, I came to discover the traumatic and bloody history of my family's survivor stories of the Armenian Genocide of 1915 that was carried out by the Ottoman-Turkish government behind the chaos of the screen of World War I, during which time, about a million and a half Armenians were slaughtered, another million plus, deported brutally, so that in the end, by the end of World War I, an ancient civilization, a 2,500-year-old civilization had been wiped out on its historic land. And in fact, before it was all over, the three major Christian minority cultures of the Ottoman Empire had all been just about exterminated, the Greek and Assyrian communities as well, following off the Armenian massacres. Well, this history wasn't spoken about in my household very much. This was kept under wraps. This was really a repressed history. And my my closest grandparent, my maternal grandmother... Uh, who's been like the great soul guider of my life, uh, was a Death March survivor. Mm -hmm. She lost everyone in her family except her two infant toddler daughters, a prosperous silk merchant and textile merchant family from Diyarbakir, Southeast Ottoman Empire, historic Armenia, today Turkey. Um, Her story leaked out in small little tidbits that would whirl around in my head as a kid. I didn't know what to make of any of these tidbits. Clearly, I stored them up. And when I was old enough to begin thinking about life and meaning and history and culture and family, these these filaments of trauma started leaking back into my imagination and start, started to affect my language and and my, my poems. I began writing poems in which my grandmother was starting to figure as a kind of persona, a voice, a revenant. And so a couple of these poems appeared in my first book, a 1979 book called Father Fisheye. And then in 1983, I just spilled into a book-length cycle of poems that made up my second book, Sad Days of Light. So the Armenian Genocide legacy, the transmission of trauma across generations as it came to be called, I didn't have that phrase in my head in my 20s or even 30s, but that idea uh, that transmission of trauma across generations came to inform a piece of what I was doing as a poet. But yeah, Black Dog of Fate was my first prose uh, And then The foray. Burning
1: Tigress as well.
0: And The Burning Tigress, The Armenian Genocide in America's Response, was my, uh, was my narrative history uh, about the events of the Armenian Genocide and how they engaged American culture and American relief and, rescue, re, 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 relief and rescue movements in the 19-teens, which is an extraordinary American story.
1: And I know just because I know you that, that what's happening in Ukraine resonates in a different way for you as well with this background that you have.
0: Yeah, it's, very, uh, it's, it's triggering and shocking to watch the destruction of Ukraine day in and day out, since late February. And there are many things it triggers and many things it inaugurates that Putin's uh, uh, monstrous and criminal uh, uh, invasion of Ukraine. Well, one 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 of the bells that rings for me as a student of history is the profound significance of lying and denialism. And I want to say this in the context of the Turkish government's 107-year-old campaign of lying about the Armenian genocide, of of international denialism and coercion about that history, um, because... The denial of genocide, for example, you can deny many kinds of crimes, but denial of genocide, scholars like to remind the world, is the final stage of genocide because it seeks to demonize the victims and rehabilitate the perpetrators. Now, what we see Putin doing day in and day out is lying about his entire campaign of criminal behavior in Ukraine, lying to his own people and denying the very historical reality of Ukrainian identity, Ukrainian history, um, Ukrainian language and culture. Our good friend, Oskold Melnychuk has written a lot about this in recent months. and. Putin's level of denialism again reminds us that lying and denying reality and history is a component of human rights criminality.
1: And I'm specifically going to ask you, I'm going to change the, uh, change the trajectory of our conversation. I love the love poem that you read uh, at the end of the reading the other night.
0: I can write about love war art God nature and uh, as we are here on May 1 this poem happens to be titled how much I love you how much I love you because your shadow walks through the wall because my heart is a double beat because throbbing moves around the room the way floaters spin across the eye because the pale green of wet leaves because the confusion of new grass because the brush strokes are blue because buds of azaleas spread across lawns because daylight is water
1: so beautiful Peter thank you for that that's that's from Peter's new book No Sign and. Uh, it's a beautiful book, Peter. The image on the cover, who, who where is the image from? I know it's, uh, oh, it's an Ellsworth Kelly. Yeah,
0: it's, an ima- it's It's a, a beautiful a, painting. It's a clean, cover. minimalist, uh, abstract form from Ells- Ellsworth Kelly, and um, I hope those who buy the book will enjoy playing with the relationship between the image and the title of the book and maybe it'll take them into the book with some complexities that I I hope reverberate through the poems.
1: Yeah, and I know you have a you have an abiding interest in art as well yeah. as I know.
0: Yeah.
1: And that probably stems from just a lifelong interest in things in general,
0: right? I really you know, I I painted a little bit in college and I didn't didn't pursue it but i'd like to come i'd like to do some visual art in the in the in, in coming years i studied art seriously almost had a double major in art history so yeah, i've been immersed in the visual arts my whole life i i like many poets, I would put myself into the ekphrastic zone. I write a lot about art. Well,
1: and I think the only way I got him here to do this podcast on a Sunday was that he wanted to come and spend some time in our art room that we have filled with well, art. Mitch, poets. it's the greatest so, art
0: room I've ever
1: seen. Well, it a was a star. big lure to get him over here.
0: I, I it wasn't. I, I would have uh, I would have hitchhiked here from <laughs> from South Beach, but. Um, now your art, your art room, which I'm going to spend time in as soon as we're done with the podcast, is the most extraordinary room of art books I've ever seen. Period. Well, it's lovely to yeah, have it I mean, for so you. So you clearly are to be there. In art. <laughs> I would
1: love you to read another poem if you would. too. would you read the poem that you wrote that is about Vietnam?
0: We all got draft cards back then. Before. Nixon did away with the draft and turned it into a professional army. But after um, – there was a transitional moment when um, the protest against the war was becoming so great in all walks of American life and the Nixon administration decided to institute a lottery meaning that your birthday was drawn out of a hat, and that positioned you in order uh, to how likely it would be for you to be drafted. And um, so we were, uh, in, in that in that moment, you know, we were waiting. Uh, at first, you were waiting for your draft card, and then later you were waiting to see where your birth date would be put you. It was a time fraught with anxiety and fear as well as a moral revulsion about the war being a deeply misguided mis- uh, mistake as Daniel Ellsberg's uh, Pentagon papers later made clear. This poem is set in high school days. Uh, I'm a college football uh, high school football player at that time a running back, and our team turned out to be an undefeated one. It was a fun year in one level, but underneath all that, there was darkness lurking, waiting for a number. Words appeared as the soft purring of a cat, crow screeching, end of a hymn, cicadas in trees, spilling in the white noise of my head. da Mekong, Saigon, Nam. I walked suburban streets to school, hi-fi blasting somebody to love, coach meeting out orders, my playbook of fakes and jives, my head swelling in the helmet, over sweet cocktails with my beloved under the yellowing ginkgos of 64th off Lex. For a moment, I felt grown up. And then the air in my head was orange, Chemical Dow and DuPont, the jukebox blasting like my fire. And where were we? Staring at the image, pistol to the head, a boy I once knew on the white-lined field was bagged and flown back in the dioxin haze of morning. In the mangrove of my head, chopping sounds. Under the covers, rice paddies, floating mirrors with unidentified objects. There were Catholics in Saigon and Catholics on my street. What about Laos? What about Cambodia? American questions spilling in sunlight on white shutters. And I'm home on plush carpet waiting for a number. Mm.
1: Peter, that was a remarkable, that's a remarkable poem. And it brings back, even though I'm just a couple years younger than you, I remember that because I got a lottery number as well. Even at that, by that point, we sort of knew that, you know, nobody from my age would be going at that point but there was still that fear and that sense of right. expectation and you know you describe it so perfectly and beautifully there and, and also just the kind of confusion that you must have felt.
0: For me uh, and I'm sure for many it, it was a time of um, reckoning and uh, rethinking values and priorities uh, perhaps an, an image in my, in my head, that, in my life, that uh, helps crystallize it. One weekend in late August of 1969, I was at Woodstock. And the next weekend, I was weighing into to the freshman football locker room uh, at Bucknell. And um, these two worlds were starting to collide for me. They weren't, they weren't quite making sense. And I figured it out. <laughs> you know
1: Well, you took the road that was the right road for you to be taking, which we can now talk about something where we first met, which you know the echoes of um, the echoes of what you've just been talking about reverberate in what the group that brought us together, right which is a group called Writers for Democratic Action. And um, why don't you talk a little bit about how that group started? I was a little late to coming to the group, but it has a really interesting kind of uh, genesis.
0: Well, Mitch, um, you didn't come that late, but your presence has been extraordinary because uh, you know your ability to connect uh, writers to the nation through bookstores is an extraordinary thing. So I know how grateful I am to you and the whole group is. It's been an exciting group, even though we've known each other mostly on Zoom because our, our, our experience has coincided with the pandemic. Um, the, the, uh, the, the origin of the group came out of another group that I'm a part of, Robert J. Lifton's uh, Wellfleet Seminar. Uh, Robert Lifton, I'm sure many of our listeners know, is the eminent psychiatrist and historian who's written so many extraordinary books about mass violence and trauma and survivor experience. Well, I had just come from a, a, a Robert Lifton Wellfleet meeting and Todd Gitlin, uh, the uh, grade 60s student activist and leader and writer and journalist and...
1: We just lost Todd.
0: We just lost Todd this year. And he was, as again many know, the, um, uh, the uh, chair of the uh, Graduate Journalism School of Columbia. Well, Todd, after our meeting, called, uh, called me up and said, Hey, Peter, um, why don't we just uh, get together with a few writers and see if we can do something? to help the Biden campaign. And this was around August 1 of 2020. I don't think Kamala Harris was on the ticket yet. That was about to happen. And uh, I said, yeah, Todd. I mean, we both agreed this is a scary time. Uh, 2020 election is like none other we've uh, known. Uh, So much at stake and on the line. So we got together, a group of writers, and we were Eight or ten at st- at the start, and we um, we grew to another fifteen, maybe, for our steering committee. And by mid um, by mid fall, we were off on a real journey. Our our first incarnation was Riders Against Trump, and our in, in our next incarnation uh, in January of. Uh, 2021 was Writers for
1: Democratic Action. Yeah, and I, I got involved with, when when the group was uh, mounting these wonderful <coughs> Zoom meetings with in various states, swing states to try to energize voters in those states. And we did one in Florida, right. did one was done in Georgia, one was done in Texas. Really, really interesting. And A lot of the writers in the group, people like Carolyn Fourche and Siri Husfed and 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 Paul and Paul um, Paul Oster and others who
0: yeah Jim Carroll Oscar Melnichuk uh, Jill McCorkle and uh, so I mean there's a whole group I don't Robin leave, I don't want to Taru leave anyone and, I don't want to leave it's anyone an amazing out. group of people it's a gorgeous have, group of, of of people with a with with profound commitments both to uh, literary culture and the making of the art we make and also uh, the the Responsibility uh, writers uh, can take on uh, for the larger civic whole.
1: What is the biggest fear you have lurking uh, in the <clears throat> politics of today?
0: <clears throat> you know, Mitch, I think we're 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 really hitting a ground zero moment where uh, the very foundations of democracy are at stake. I mean, we are witnessing unimaginable assaults on the foundations of our culture. And we've seen what movement, conservative, and Republican Party have uh, done uh, with voter suppression and voter restriction in so many states as, as an act of, of bitterness and anger for the excellent democratic process of the fall of 2020, we see the corrosive impact of Donald Trump's big lie. I mean, it's a big lie that's up there with now a lot of the big lies of the modern era trying to claim that uh, the 2020 election was stolen when indeed it was the fairest and most well-vetted election in recorded American history. And the Supreme Court testified to that, uh, as did uh, Trump's own uh, attorney general. So we, we have fallen into hazardous times. We now see assaults on uh, books, the public school curriculum... Um,
1: The press.
0: The press has been under fire since the beginning of the Trump regime. Uh, And also, the very fundamental bureaus of American government. With
1: the election, with the defeat of Trump at the ballot box, I know that I had thought that perhaps a lot of that Uh, kind of denialism that was going Mm -hmm. on would fade away but instead there have been new voices trying to pick up on it and trying to to sort of extend the lie and it's become really really cynical we're seeing that in our own state with our governor Um, and uh, i think that is something that is more dangerous even than Trumpism, in a sense. Boy, that's the, the these are the reasons why I love being on that Sunday call, Peter, <laughs> to be able to hear, you know, with the eloquence that you possess, you know, crystallizing uh, where we are right now. But you know what I want to do, too, is, you know, I've thought about this, and I, I never really thought about it until I was on that Sunday call, and you know, and, and then and then getting to know Paul even better, Paul Auster, and and reading about you know reading his new book Burning Boy, which was really you know wonderful. Yeah, great a, biography about another New Jersey guy, great Stephen Crane. Yeah, yeah. And so talk, let's we talk about Miami, but yeah. you're a New Jersey guy through and through. So let's talk about New Jersey a little bit. What is it about New Jersey? I mean, we talked a little bit. I know that there are poets that are associated with New Jersey. There's something about New Jersey that a lot of us who don't know New Jersey don't really get.
0: Well, I, you know, there are several New Jerseys. There's Northern New Jersey and especially Northeastern New Jersey, where I'm from. Uh, I grew, I was born in Teaneck, New Jersey, and grew up in Tenafly. These are towns in Bergen County. This is the northeast uh, lip of the state, and. I grew up a stone's throw from the GW Bridge. We could be in midtown Manhattan in 30 minutes without traffic. So while you have all that intense energy from New York City coming at you, New Jersey, uh, especially northern and northeastern Jersey, is a zone, culture zone. And it's a dense population, very multicultural. has produced an extraordinary range of writers. I mean, Stephen Crane, Philip Freneau, if you want to go back to the American Revolution, the first great poet of the nation, um, Philip Roth, Allen Ginsberg, Amiri Baraka, Robert Pinsky, Allen Ginsberg, I mentioned. Um, uh, and you can really, at William Carlos Williams, um, it, the list goes on. It's a, it's a rich place of creative and cultural energy. It's also a rich place for popular music
1: the boss right <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah frank sinatra uh the four seasons the shirelles uh we have a lot of uh, bruce springsteen we have a lot of a lot of uh, linguistic energy a lot of music uh poetry fiction creative nonfiction. Have come out of the garden state. A lot of people don't think of it as gardeny because they see the industrial northeast. But a lot of the state is beautiful farms and horse farms. And then there's the Jersey Shore, which gives the state its kind of expansive openness. It's an interesting place to have come out of. Um, between and Manhattan was always just a, a uh, immediate spot for me as soon as i could put keys in the car ignition i was in new york city i was down the village i was in the east village i i, I lived this was in the mid-60s yeah it was the late 60s uh latter 60s by the time i got a driver's license but yeah i started going to the city and and uh partying in the mid 60s so the city was just so exciting then even if we look back at it now and see that it was a more dangerous and more chaotic place than it is today uh, who knew then then you just live in the place you live so i really had a a beautiful experience of kind of a suburban culture on the other side of the gw bridge and uh, access to a rich manhattan life my my one aunt Anna Balakian was a professor of, um, of French literature at NYU and my other aunt, Nona Balakian, was an editor at the New York Times Book Review so I have all these Balakian roots in Manhattan that was all a rich part of my New York City connection so but coming back to Jersey, uh, a dynamic place. so another person I comes to mind and he was Uh, he went to the same uh, prep school that I did, was uh, Tony Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain. uh, An original voice, a terrific writer, and a great journalist, beloved of millions in this country. Uh, So you can keep adding to that New Jersey culture list, um, and it comes to be quite rich.
1: I've developed a brand new appreciation for things New Jersey because I I love all of those people you mentioned but I never put the New Jersey thread through them all and uh, uh, I thank you for doing that
0: would you read another poem for us this is in my new book uh, in which I have a, a section of fruit and vegetable meditations or object lessons and in this poem Eggplant a much, a much cooked vegetable, fruit vegetable uh, in, in Middle Eastern cuisine, in Armenian cuisine. There are evocations of, of the um, violent Armenian genocide deportation past, but this poem is going to come out on the dinner table in New Jersey in the end. Eggplant. I loved the white moon circles and the purple halos on a plate as the salt sweat them. The oil in the pan smoked like bad days in the Syrian desert. When a moon stayed all day, when morning was a purple elegy for the last friend seen, when the fog of the river bank rose like a holy ghost, My mother made those white moons sizzle in some egg wash and salt. Some parsley appeared from the garden, and summer evenings came with no memory but the table with white dishes. Shining aubergine, black-skinned beauty, bitter apple. We used our hands. Oh, that's beautiful. I might read another one, uh, a poem I was mentioning to you. Uh, my grandmother um, was the only survivor of her family. Her entire family was massacred by the Turkish killing squads in the first week of August of 1915. Her her escape story I've written about in my memoir "Black Dog of Fate," but. This is a kind of poem of celebration, a poem about Ellis Island, that great threshold, that crossing ground, where so many Americans have come to find a new life, uh, a place of hope. Ellis Island. The tide's of Bach cantata. The beach is the swollen neck of Isaac. The tide's a lamentation of white opals. The beach is free, the coke machine rusted out. Here's everything you'll never need. Hemp hemp cords, curry combs, jade and musk, a porcelain cup blown into the desert, stockings that walked to Syria in 1915. On the rocks, some ewes and rams graze in the outer dark. The manes of the shoreline undo your hair a sapphire ring is fingerless the weed and algae are floating like a bed and the bloodless skulls whose breaths would stink of all of us if we could kiss them on the beaks are gnawing on the dead
1: Peter thank you so much for coming to Miami thank you so much for being a part of uh, the reading that you were the other night but also thank you for your friendship and thank you for all the good work you do and, and, and thanks for being on The Literary Life this afternoon
0: Mitch thank you for all of it and um, I'll come back anytime and you've been so amazing uh, to be with these days um, thank you